0: The Davos crowd conspires while the eyes of the world look elsewhere. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. We got a lot of bounce in today's diving board, I can tell you. Article caught my eye, how Davos became a target for conspiracy theorists and anarchists. They just threw that anarchist in there. I don't think they mentioned it at all in the article. This was on CNBC.com. And the very first item is like a bullet point right under the headline. Kind of answers the question. They are conspiring. It says nearly 2,500 global leaders from business, politics and civil society are expected to take part in Davos this week. That doesn't really mean anything. Davos has a place, but it's a place in Switzerland where the World Economic Forum holds its annual meeting. And the World Economic Forum is a consortium, a collection of elected government officials and other government officials, CEOs, leaders of civil society, whatever that means. Anyway, it's thousands of people come together and they talk about government and business and the nexus thereof. And they want to enhance that and kind of foster that continuum. The article actually goes on to report that the theme of the event this year is, quote, history at a turning point, government policies and business strategies. So it's pretty clear what they're up to. And actually, if you are not familiar with it, the World Economic Forum is basically a 50-year-old organization that I consider to be dedicated to What I always think of as fascism where the government and the corporations are kind of united with them. They actually get business leaders these days to take the lead, but they expect governments to follow suit. Sometimes they pressure governments to go first. But it seems like these days what I call backdoor or reverse fascism has been working better for these guys. But we'll talk about that. We've talked about it it before. So. This grand agenda that they throw out there does not make it sound like they aren't global conspirators. They sound like they are just because of their agenda. But the article says the World Economic Forum has been the subject of unfounded conspiracy theories, which it is trying to address head on. Now, I would say that the articles claim that the conspiracy theories are unfounded is an unfounded claim because I think it's pretty well-founded. They say, referencing WEF's previous theme, quote, the Great Reset, hundreds of thousands of posts have circulated on social media in recent years, many appearing to claim that the global elite were planning to use the coronavirus to bring about total economic collapse. Now, I think that's funny because the Great Reset is a lot more than that. It's definitely a real thing. The World Economic Forum has written plenty about it. You can talk about social media posts all you want, but there are books called The Fourth Industrial Revolution, Preparing for the Fourth Industrial Revolution or something like that, and then this Great Reset, which is ushering in or wants to usher in this prefab Fourth Industrial Revolution, which is, by the way, a blurring of the lines between biology and technology, so that's why a pandemic might be useful for that. But this idea that it's just about total economic collapse is only a small part of it however it did get me thinking that actually that is a big part of this that is a big part of it the world economic forum was one of the main players in event 201 which was the tabletop exercise that basically ushered in covid and when that happened that happened in october 2019 but in february 2020 when it when i Realized what was happening. What I thought the number one thing was, was the economic collapse. I used to say, if you woke up from a coma in April 2020, and somebody asked you what you think happened, you wouldn't say, I think there must have been a pandemic. You would have said, I think there must have been an economic collapse. And I had thought that they really needed to do that because they needed to get interest rates up. They were in the end of an 11-year expansion, and interest rates were at like 2%. If there's going to be any kind of correction, you need like 7% interest rates. So that was my initial thought. And, and actually, their conspiracy theory and this doesn't even go far enough. They act like that the accusation is that the World Economic Forum exploited the coronavirus for the economic collapse. Yes, they are using it to usher this in, but... They were at the table at Event 201. They were one of the hosts. So I would say they created the problem in order to usher that in. And now that looks like the theme of this year's Davos meeting was largely this terrible economy we're about to see. So they are poised to exploit that economic collapse. So maybe they did bring in the COVID and the economic collapse. And now they're poised to exploit that and really make lemonade after what they had to clean up from last time, which is they want to use this to justify more global governance and more public-private collaboration. So I would say the economic collapse is in evidence. It's no theory. And the conspiracy actually seems to be in evidence because Klaus actually refers to it. He calls it collaboration, but he hits that in the first five minutes of Davos. So there's an opening video. It's like 25 minutes Klaus does the beginning of it, and within the first five minutes, he literally says that they have, as these elites, two jobs. One is to act as stakeholders in their communities. (laughs) Do you have a billionaire next door? Do you think they're part of your community? The only community they're a part of is that, that one seems to me. But in any case, he wants them to be stakeholders who don't just go after themselves but save the world. And actually I have over the years, in mainly when I was in banking, exclusively when I was in banking, rubbed elbows for with some of these super huge dudes. And they definitely think a lot of them, if not all of the ones that I met, that they are saving the world. That that They do well and they do good and that they are saving us from ourselves when they put in regulations that help their businesses. They believe in them. He also said, though, Klaus, is that not only do they have to act as stakeholders, they have to collaborate. So there are only two things he told them to do, act as stakeholders and collaborate. He wants coordination, cooperation, discussion, and not every minute of this thing is blasted on YouTube, so... There's a conspiracy afoot. Whether it's altruistic or not is a different question. He also talks about what the four big issues are. Ukraine gave him you know, an ovation to the, to the very strong delegation that came from Ukraine. Climate change, of course. The pandemic, of course. And then the last one, and this was a biggie, the economy. And he specifically highlights the economic problems that are looming ahead of us. He says inflation, we got that. Uh, Problems with growth, we got that. Too much debt. A little late to start acting like you care about that, but yes, we do have that. Then he throws in poverty with tens of millions of people starving to death. (laughs) It's like, what? I don't know if he said to death, but... He just threw that in there. But that was definitely deliberate. They are really focused on fear. So they are not only focused on fear as a metaphysical control mechanism to get us to comply, but they actually are in the business. These big shots, certainly to the extent they exploit government, they are in the business of providing fiscal and physical security. So they need to create a market for that. They need you to be worried that you're not gonna be able to feed yourself and they need you to worry about danger. Sometimes they focus on one, sometimes they focus on the other. I always thought that kind of defined the left and the right before we got this new identity politics on both sides, but when it was more like an economic thing, the left feared fiscal insecurity and the right feared physical insecurity. So they take that fear both to get you into an agitated state, but also to actually sell you what they're selling. And the introductory video this year, it was, I don't know if it was five minutes or what. It's all the stuff's in the show notes. Holy cow. It was, the first minute and a half was just, us. it was like watching that, Movie, was it Fifth Element? Uh, I think it was Fifth Element with Bruce Willis and oh, I don't think it was Daryl Hannah. I don't know, but she like wants to learn everything there is to learn about the world, so she just goes to Wikipedia or something and reads the whole thing from beginning to end. And when she gets to war, she's just like covered in tears. I mean, this was what this was like. It was just a series of atrocity propaganda like for the first minute and a half and then the end was like the second half was Birds flying and the sun rising and all this kind of everything's great. People are holding hands. So they have to convince you that this is the problem. And either they're going to do that by just scaring you or they're going to do it by actually making that problem happen. And I think we've seen both of those kind of scenarios like 9-11 and the pandemic. Like, you know, these are things that are really happening. But like one time recently or maybe last year, a couple of years ago, Klaus said there's a cyber attack that's going to just blow your shoes off. And that did not happen yet, and it might not happen, but it got us to pay attention to that issue and start to worry about it because even if they're doing it on purpose, if they're actually going to do it, it's actually going to be a problem. (laughs) We can see that. So they really feed on the fear and they and they're definitely conspiring or collaborating or whatever but I'll give you a conspiracy theorists that they're not theory that they're not going to throw in that article. And that's it, that I actually think that there's a chance that it's no coincidence that the world's eyes are focused squarely on Texas right now instead of Switzerland, because we should be swarming everything coming out of Davos. And my guess is that nine out of 10 of the alternative media coverage right now is on gun control or the many things that are coming out of Texas right now. When the agenda at Davos, they had I think 400 sessions. He said 400 sessions. I mean, we should divide that up. <laughs> Everybody in the vault media should take one session. I, I don't. We don't have access to all those sessions, but I'm just saying this stuff. Is what they're planning. And I wonder if that's ever happened before. Like when there's Davos, there's like some major event. I think it has. I think that does. I, I'm not, I don't think this is a first on that. So, but in any event, moving beyond Klaus and the opening stuff, there was the other guy who participated and hosted this first 25 minutes. And that's the president of the Swiss Confederation, Ignacio Cassis. I don't know how he pronounces it because He could pronounce it the French way or whatever because they speak French, German, and Italian, I think, all three in Switzerland some places. C-A-S-S-I-S is his name, Ignazio, Ignazio. Okay, so he had much more interesting stuff to say, though, I have to say. He, first of all, I was shocked to hear them say that Switzerland came out against the Ukraine war and that they had... Joined in the sanctions or calling for sanctions. And I thought immediately Switzerland is neutral, right? Shouldn't that not be something that they opine on at all? And he went into a lengthy apologia, I guess you would call it, about how sometimes. And I thought he was going to say this doesn't break our neutrality because we're not in war. And I I think he touched on that a little bit. But most of what he said was (laughs) I was shocked it was just empty platitudes about how immoral what Russia is doing is and just going on and on about how, like, good people can't stand by. And even if you have a neutral stance, you can't be strictly committed to a policy that is an abomination, basically. Never at any point does he address that there are two sides of every story I mean, that's a saying as old as the hills because it's true. He never discusses whether there are any facts at issue, whether there could have been any reason. I mean, these people in geopolitics act like there's no reason for anyone to ever oppose them, that the only reason could possibly be that that person is absolutely crazy. And honestly, the stuff that they were saying about Russia... What he was saying about Russia and Ukraine, I would have accepted his speech. I would have agreed with it if he had been talking about Victoria Nuland's coup against Ukraine in 2014 about sovereignty and destruction and injustice and a breach from international order and protocol. I mean, she even said F the EU. I don't care that she said that. I don't care she's low I don't care that she doesn't care about the EU. But she was she was betraying her own partners in that, in in taking those actions. So that I was really just, I mean, he was absolutely moralizing. So he then goes on to lay out... The three scenarios and literally calls them scenarios of what the future might look like as a backdrop for discussions of these people at Davos. So this keeps pointing out to me that there could be some real tension, some real uncertainty in the future or how their plans unfold. So that's a hopeful thought. Let's go through his scenarios. Scenario one. He says this is a high-risk scenario. Now, right off the bat, and I did some research on this, and the best I could come up with was, he says the first thing is sectoral globalization. And the only thing I could find to really explain what sectoral globalization could be is that, You build up sectors within your economy, some of which are more globalized than others, or some of them are poised to plug into globalization later, but aren't there yet. That's the only place I've seen this kind of term used and never really exactly as he used it. But he explains the scenario as forming blocks, forming separate economic areas, closed regional networks. He says this will lead to Polarization, maybe multipolarization. He says it leads to hegemonic politics. Hegemon is like a regional dominating power, like the US is the hegemon of the Western Hemisphere, and Germany is probably the hegemon of Europe, which is why England doesn't like them so much historically. I think Russia would be a natural hegemon of Eurasia if such a thing were possible. Maybe Saudi Arabia wants to be the hegemon in the Middle East. So uh, he goes on to say there would be cold wars over trade. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what I said that it was going to. That what looks like why would provoke Russia could be a a cold war like that over trade. That's really funny. I mean, I've seen other parallels in what I'm about to tell you, but I, I missed that one in in what I had begun to kind of formulate as my working (laughs) theory this year, maybe since the beginning of this year, I've seen this unfold. He said it would be a, a weakening global regulatory system. And this all would feed into a serious threat to prosperity. So their contention is that global trade is essential for prosperity as if, and they talk about efficiencies, as if there's just uh, incomparable efficiencies in in that division of labor, comparative advantage, also competitive advantage. And I learned all that in economics and I'm don't totally quibble with the theory. but I think now that we have batch factories that you can really make small batches of a lot a lot of stuff, and I think about like what producing what needs to be global. I, I got a bag of shrimp one time from China. It was frozen. (laughs) And it was like $3.50. And I'm thinking, was this really the most efficient way to get me this here? Or is this a function of policy of transportation subsidies or just interest rate, exchange rate differences? Like, it just couldn't make sense that that would be cheaper than frozen shrimp from somewhere in the United States or fresh shrimp from Louisiana or something. I don't know. But uh, I question whether you really need that. And if that is really, even if it does come down to dollars and cents and like really industrialized farming is cheaper, how do you define prosperity? I mean, if we didn't have an interstate highway network, I think that we would have a lot more farm to table stuff, a lot more seasonal Foods that we accessed ourselves, a lot more variety or regional geographic preferences would be served. I think that this idea of globalization doesn't necessarily foster that much prosperity. What it might foster is being able to exploit people who have a much lower standard of living by bringing them work that they would be happy to have. And I am fine with that. But... It serves to lower our prices, which I'm also fine with. But to talk about it as a universal prosperity and the only way to universal prosperity, again, I would say if you broke down the policy barriers, you would have that kind of free trade where it made sense without necessarily having globalization, which these, these global corporations. So that's their scenario one. And he says he does not like that one. There's a second scenario. He calls it the weighted retreat from hyper-globalization. He said it's uh, that countries would have a strategic calculation for renationalizing resources, value chains, and production processes of systemic importance. So if you really need something, you should be able to make it at home. That reminds me of that autarky thing. There, are miscellaneous, like you have to make things at home. In order to be, it's like a defensive measure to be autonomous in all necessities. He goes on to say it will lead to reduced interdependence, less risk, and fewer suppliers. So I never like the fewer suppliers thing. I always think that's what they want because they're the few suppliers, and that's what I am always a little worried about. That, but this scenario is seems like what I'm actually seeing. Or what we saw in that RAND Corporation document where that was like paid for by the U.S. Army. I think it was from last week's deep dive, maybe May 20th, 2022's deep dive. And they talked about how we would corral Russia into areas that we had a competitive advantage or provoke them into taking action in Ukraine to get them to spend their money and divert their resources and and pivot to us. So, this alone makes me think that possibly what the US is doing is more scenario two, but maybe what the World Economic Forum wants is something a little different, which I'll tell you in scenario three. But he says that this is also a risk that there's a trade off of higher product prices, since this targeted refocusing inevitably brings efficiency losses. But it could be a transitional solution. He'll accept it. So I could see it bringing efficiency losses in that if, if it's really what I thought it was, which was, or I speculate is possible, that there's energy, that the fossil fuel stuff, that the reason we've really hit the climate change thing so hard and hit fossil fuels so hard is that we want to take away that power from the Middle East and Russia and China. And if you are going to abandon fossil fuels, that would bring efficiency losses, and that is a regional thing that requires probably globalization. Although we have oil too, I think we're energy independent at the moment. I don't know how long that will last. I'm not sure about like supplies and stuff. But oil is its own animal. That's really that could potentially be the source of all surplus wealth in the 20th century. I don't know. I'd have to look into that, but. It'd be worth looking into, let's say. So he doesn't want that. He says, this guy, I wonder if the Italians go with Nacho. Let's call him Nacho. Okay. Nacho says uh, he wants this third scenario. He wants stronger, targeted multilateralism. A renewed focus on core tasks is the way to get past the dashed hopes That resulted from COVID-19 focus on the major issues that can't be dealt with in isolation, such as climate pandemics and extreme poverty, as well as global financial crises, trade blockages, energy supply issues, the risk of war, mass migration. He actually hit more than I normally hit. But I noticed, and I'll always refer you to report from Iron Mountain for that, they state outright, focus on issues that, are, that cross borders. Focus on stuff that require international coordination for a central solution, or at least create those problems or def- frame problems like that. Like extreme poverty does, is not a global, I mean, it, it's something that we should care about. But I would say it's more of a function of the of these guys controlling everything than free markets. So this is what he wants. And that and he does say that these are the issues that will get people to the table. And he says, UN and Bretton Woods, Bretton Woods, is that still a thing, cover these issues but are blocked by competing interests. And again, I think this points to my kind of appreciation for or at least being open to the possibility that the U.S. does have its own interests. People who dominate our policy have their own interests that aren't 100 percent aligned with these guys' interests. So let's think of these guys as a bunch of like independent billionaires who want to control the world. And then you have like the U.S. Army (laughs) and they have the Rand Corporation and whoever controls that. Wants more of the pie for themselves. So that could be where the issue is. He wants timely and decisive multilateral action. I don't know if he means multilateral. I think he means multilateral like governments, companies, leaders of civil society, whatever. Not just different nations, but maybe he means just different nations. Uh, He says timely and decisive multilateral action in key areas is imperative rules and reforms are needed to ensure listen to this well established and bindingly accepted political coordination that is up to meeting these new challenges so i guess he's trying to say its nation states but bindingly accepted political coordination up to meeting these these new challenges they're not new but the challenges such as climate pandemics Poverty, global financial crises, trade blockages, energy supply, risk of war, mass migration, all of those things he's saying cannot be dealt with in isolation. So they're calling for world government. They call it global governance. because that's fooling everyone but here's the thing that really tweaked me he ended his remarks he ended his remarks admonishing participants to come with an open mind to really hear each other to not have preconceptions and not to moralize now this was translated but i think he was using that word not to moralize this is a guy who just said that, that he oversaw the betrayal of Swiss neutrality. And his it, his reasons were 100% moralizing. It was crazy. So here he says that. Just oh, burns me up. <sighs> anyway, so that is the intro to the Davos stuff. And I really, I mean, it could take me a long time to go through these guys showing their hand These are the global conspirators You want a conspiracy theory These are the global conspirers Conspiring And I think I want to just really hit A lot of these topics There are a couple of them Something called geo-economics I want to hit that I want to hit this idea They have that anti-globalism Is why we need more globaliza- globalism Or global governance There's so many topics That they cover that Really illuminate what's going on and how to think about some of these events that seem so one off. So, in my, in the end, when I'm thinking about this, I really think that these evil overlords and their sinister plots are descending over the Western world. I mean, we can see the stuff they say they do. They do get their way sometimes, but the fact that they do have competitors on the world stage, and it does seem more and more like that, adds an element of chaos to the mix that I think really calls into question how closely the final picture will look like the one they are trying to paint. So that could make all the difference in the world. So if you're, if you, if you think about how you extrapolate things, if you make like a financial model and Excel spreadsheet or whatever, if you get one like, critical variable a teeny bit off in the beginning and it compounds over time, it takes you in a different direction, your final picture could be very far off what your goal was. So I think any chaos injected into these guys' planning is hopeful. And the fact that they're still scenarioing out stuff I hate and love that expression at the same time, uh, to me it means that they, there is some chaos. There is a ghost in the machine and and they're just trying to get it out. So that's excellent, I think. And something else that's excellent is that I got an email from Ismcant and he wants to piggyback another prop report meetup off a robbie the fire event so if you went to the last one he says this isn't going to have a slideshow whatever that means because i wasn't at the last one he said it's just going to be a podcast and stand up robbie and chris vega are murderers behind a microphone so it is a guaranteed blast it's on sunday july 17th same place it was before fayetteville georgia I'm going to put the link in the show notes. I don't know if you can get the show notes from all the podcasting platforms, but you can get it at thepropreport.com if you look at this show on thepropreport.com. Also, I am trying to get a regular schedule that you can predict and that I can deliver on. So I think maybe I'm going to post 5 a.m. Eastern on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I'll try to put up always a conversation. Maybe maybe I'll call it the buddy dive, (laughs) buddy dive. And uh, also two deep dives a week is my goal. And I really try to get something up every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 5 a.m. That way I don't have to try to make them short because obviously they're not meant to be short. (laughs) And if you enjoyed this show, please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it. And feel free to tweet at me at Monica Perez Show.